invite you to join me back in Hebrews 8, if you're not there already, Hebrews chapter 8. This morning we will be looking at a better covenant, a better covenant, Hebrews 8. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning in the truths that we have just confessed and song. That we are not complete in ourselves. That it is no merit of our own that gives us hope. That we are complete in Christ alone. That we are saved by faith because of the better covenant that has been secured by our eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, who died who rose again victorious and who is seated at your right hand right now pleading for us and who is coming again in power, who will sit on his throne, who will rule in righteousness and in justice. Heavenly Father, we long for that day. We pray that even this morning as we look at this passage, that we would be encouraged in our faith, that we would be challenged to turn from our sin, to confess And to cling to the one who brings salvation, who can give forgiveness. We pray that you would be magnified in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you this morning, as you got up, maybe you went and you brushed your teeth, you you went downstairs, you went to the kitchen, you started the coffee... You went to the fridge, you pulled out a bottle of pureed pureed carrots, and you cracked it open and you jumped into it. Or maybe you you went to the pantry and you grabbed a, a thing of Gerber baby food with chicken flavored. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe you like chicken flavored. How many of you this morning got up and just jumped into, you were so excited to eat this new flavor of Gerber? Adults don't eat baby food, do we? It is ineffective. In fact, I, I was Googling it. Could, a, could an adult survive on eating just baby food? And the article I said said that it lacks adequate amounts of fiber, fat, and protein to sustain a healthy adult. No, it's not intended for that. It is ineffective for adults. Now, it serves a purpose, does it not? A baby doesn't just jump out of the womb and go straight into a Thanksgiving dinner. Baby food serves a purpose. It is limited in scope and purpose, but it serves it, and it serves it well. As we come to Hebrews 8, we see that the Old Covenant served a purpose. As we come specifically to verses 6 to 13 this morning, we will see that that it served a purpose, and it was limited in scope. It was limited in purpose, but, but it did serve a purpose. But now something better has come. There is a new and a better, a more effective covenant has come. Better covenant. So as we work our way through this passage this morning, we'll see the necessity of a new covenant, the promise of a new covenant. And, and in fact, you can go ahead and, and turn to Jeremiah 31 and mark that because we will be turning there. Jeremiah 31. 
But we'll start here in this passage, the necessity of a new covenant, then the promise of a new covenant, and finally the the implementation of a new covenant. The necessity, the promise, and the implementation of the new covenant. We're going to start this morning here at Hebrews 8, verse 6, with the necessity of a new covenant. We actually ended last week in verse 6, so, so we've already gone through this. But I think we need to start here again. It gives us a running start to get into our passage this morning. But now. In the passage leading up, Hebrews 7, Hebrews, uh, beginning five verses of Hebrews 8, we've seen that Jesus is a better high priest. We've seen that he is in a better location. He is in the presence of God himself, seated at his right hand, as Psalm 110 reminds us. We've seen that he is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. This morning we'll see he's also the fulfillment of God's promises to Jeremiah. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But now he, this better high priest who is in a better location, he, Jesus Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry. Now clearly in that language, more excellent, there's a comparison going on here. What is the comparison? What did we see last week? Well, we're still in the comparison between the old priesthood under Aaron and Levi and the, the new priesthood, Jesus Christ, of the order of Melchizedek. And along with that, with the old uh, covenant and that, that, that old priesthood is the, the law and the old covenant. And now in Melchizedek and Jesus Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, is a new covenant. So he's comparing these two priesthoods and these two covenants And Jesus Christ, our better high priest, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is the moderator of a better covenant. Here's where that comes in. And this better covenant is established on what? Better promises. This language here is clearly drawing our minds to see that this new covenant and our new high priest is better More excellent, a better covenant, a better promises from our better priest. So what is this better covenant? He talks about a better covenant. What what is this better covenant? And that's where the author of Hebrews now turns his attention in verses 7 to 13. We've seen our better priest. We're told that he brings a better covenant, but what is this covenant and these promises? Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless. If that first covenant had been faultless. What's the implication in that, in those few words there? The implication is that this first covenant, this Mosaic covenant, this covenant, the old covenant, is fault, is faulty, that it has It is not capable of salvation. If that first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second covenant. Now here the author of Hebrews is returning to an argument that he used in chapter 7. You remember in chapter 7 as he's looking at Melchizedek. And in Psalm 110 there's a promise of a second, a, a better high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
And what argument does the author of Hebrews make in chapter 7? Is that you should be able to look at Psalm 110. And you should be able to see that there is a promise of another high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And because there's a promise of a new high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that should imply to you that the old priesthood and the old law is will be done away with. That it will be replaced. That's the same argument that he's returning to here. And yet, instead of looking at priesthoods, he's looking at covenants. The new implies the ending of the old. That's the principle here. The new implies the ending of the old. Just as a new high priest, as promised in Psalm 110, demands the ending of the old priesthood, so the promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 implies the ending of the old covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. If the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If the first covenant could have offered salvation... We would need no other covenant. But it wasn't faultless. In fact, it was faulty. Now, how was that first covenant faulty? Is that, is that saying something about God? Because it's a covenant that God made. And so is that saying then that, that the problem was with God? Well, look what it goes on to say at the beginning of verse 8. Because finding fault with them. Them. See, the problem, the failure of the Old Covenant, the fault in the Old Covenant, is not the failure or the fault of God, but of the people. It was their problem. They were unable to keep that Old Covenant. They were unable to hit the mark, as you were. They missed it. They fell short. In fact, they couldn't keep it. Why? Because they are sinners. Because we are sinners. We cannot earn God's favor. It is literally impossible for us to keep the law, to live up to his standard. The fault was not with God or with his covenant. The fault was with the people. They're sinners. We are sinners. And therefore, the covenant is faulty. It is unable to save so in these first few verses, verse 6, 7, the beginning of verse 8, what is he doing? He's laying the foundation. He's showing that there is a necessity for a new covenant. It has been promised. Therefore, we should know, since Jeremiah 31, since a new covenant has been promised, we should know that the old covenant will be done away with. Secondly, the old covenant was not able to save. It fell short in that. It was faulty when it comes to salvation. And so if there's going to be salvation, there must be a new covenant. It is necessary. It is needed. Brothers and sisters, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that if all we have is the old covenant, if all we have is the law, then like Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because it cannot save us. Because we are sinners. And the blood of bulls and goats, as the author of Hebrews will go on to say in a few chapters, cannot take away our sins. If the old covenant is all that we have, then there is no salvation. 
A new covenant is necessary if there's going to be salvation. So what is this new covenant? We see the need for it, but, but what is it? And this is where we turn to the promise of the new covenant. It's promised first in Jeremiah 31 and then repeated here. Really, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, almost word for word repeated here in verses 8 to 12. And so I, what I want to do is I want us to turn to Jeremiah 31. And we're going to look at the, old cov- the new covenant in the context in which it was given. We're going to look at it. Since it's basically word for word, we're going to study it in Jeremiah 31, the context in which it was given. So as you turn to Jeremiah 31, the promise of this new covenant, under what circumstances was this promise given? Was this new covenant given? The context of Jeremiah 31 is a people in exile. A people being carried off into exile. They have not lived up to God's law. God had made a promise at Sinai. This is my law. And if you keep it, if you follow, if you fear me, then you will flourish. He led them into the land. Across the Jordan. He gave their enemies into their hand. They were established in the land. And yet, they failed. As you come to Jeremiah 31, it is the the peak of this failure. It is all falling apart. They are being carried off into exile. Hope is gone. The covenant has failed. We, We could not keep it. We did not obey God. And now we are facing the judgment for that. And yet the good news of Jeremiah 30 and 31 is that God is not done with his people. Yes, they have failed, but God remains faithful. In Jeremiah 30, verses 1 to 4, it opens with a promise of restoration. The rest of that chapter goes on, promising of of flourishing, even mentioning the Davidic king in verses 8 to 9. Really what you see here in Jeremiah 30 and 31 is the answer to the psalmist's cry in Psalm 89, the psalm we were in this last Wednesday. Psalm 89 starts with, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, and yet by the end of the psalm, the psalmist is saying, God, you've made all these promises, and yet we're not flourishing. It's our enemies who are flourishing. It seems that you are with them and not with us. Have you abandoned your promises, God? As we come to Jeremiah 30 and 31, God is saying, no, I have not abandoned my promises. I am faithful. I am faithful. I will save you. And so, Jeremiah 31, verse 1, at the same time, this time from Jeremiah 30, this time of restoration, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. I have not given up on you. You are my people. You will be my people. Verse 3 of Jeremiah 31, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Even as you are carried off into exile, know that I am your God and that I still love you. Verse 4 and following, promises of flourishing. 
And really what you see in verse 4, uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, is that the God who led them out of Egypt and into the promised land is the same God who will lead them once again out of captivity and he will lead them home. I am not done with you. That is the promise of Jeremiah 30 and 31. I am not done with you. You come to verse 15, the Lord says, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter whipping, reaping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Matthew 2.18 actually uses this verse and applies it uh, to basically the same sound in Bethlehem over the death of the young sons as Jesus is born and as Herod seeking to, to cut that off. There is weeping in the land. And what does this weeping come from? It comes from the fact that mother and child are ripped away from each other. That sons are carried off into exile. That they are killed in battle. And yet in verse 16, God says, Refrain your voice from weeping. Refrain. I am not done with you. Verse 17 there is hope in your future. What a beautiful line. There is hope in your future. There is hope in your future. It may not feel like it right now. As you are being ripped from your home, as families are being torn apart, as you are being carried off into exile, it may seem that I have forgotten you. It may seem that I have left you. It may seem that, that I have abandoned you. And yet though you have broken the covenant, there is hope in your future because I am your God and I am faithful. Future prosperity is promised. Verses 23 24. You come to verse 26 of Jeremiah 31. After this, I awoke. This is Jeremiah. So he's been having this, this, this vision. This God has been giving him this in a dream. After this, I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. My sleep was sweet to me. How, how sweet that sleep must have been. I mean, think of Jeremiah. Think of his ministry. It was a uniquely dark and difficult ministry. And yet he had this sweet dream. How sweet it must have been. Verses 28 and 29 is a reaffirmation of Jeremiah's ministry from Jeremiah 1.10. God is promising that I am not done with my people. Yes, there will be destruction, but there is hope. And that's where we come to verse 31, this new covenant. It's in the context of a people being carried off into exile, seeing, experiencing in this moment the, the very consequence of their sin as they are ripped away from the land that God had, covered them, had promised them because they have sinned. They have fallen short of God's standards. They have missed the mark. And as they are ripped away, God promises, I'm not done. In fact, here is a new covenant. Not only will God restore them to the land and cause them to flourish, but he will do for them what the law could never do. That's what you see here. That the old covenant failed, and yet in this new covenant, I will do what the law could never do. What is this new covenant? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And this is where it starts being quoted in Hebrews 8, 8 to 12. 
The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Note there, the recipients of this covenant. That's important to note. God is making a covenant here, just as the old covenant was made at Sinai with Israel. So now here, the new covenant is made with Israel and with Judah. They are named. Notice too, even though the nation has been split, Judah and Israel, God's making the covenant with both of them, with all the people. You are my people. First thing we see is that this covenant is not, verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. It stands in contrast to that old covenant, to that Mosaic covenant. This new covenant is not like that one. My covenant that I made, which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Again here, we see that the problem was not with the covenant itself, but with the inability to keep the covenant. It was their sin that condemned them under the old covenant. The old covenant can only bring judgment to a sinful people. It cannot bring salvation to a sinful people. But, verse 33, this new covenant that I will make, but this, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I, notice the language here, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will do this. Whereas the old covenant gave the law to Israel on tablets of stone, the new covenant will transform them internally from the inside out. What those tablets of stone could not do, I will do. They brought condemnation. I will bring salvation. It is because of what God will do that they will be his people. Verse 34, no more. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. In this new covenant, when it is in full effect and it has come in all its glory, There'll be no no need to sit down and to let me tell you about my God. Because I know him too. He's my God. He has changed me too. Everyone will have experienced this. Outward conformity will be will, will flow from inward change. All will have experienced this because it is God who has done it. All in this community. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. How can this be? How can this be? We've seen the depth of our sin in this old covenant. It has opened our eyes to it. It cannot save. How can it be that that there is coming a day when we will be your people? When we will be restored to the land and, and when we will all know you? How can this be? For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. Because I will do it. I will, do, I, I will forgive them. 
By this new covenant, God will do what the law could not do. That's what Romans 8 tells us. In Jesus Christ, God has done what the law could not do. By condemning sin in the flesh in Jesus Christ. I will do in this new covenant what the law could not do. As we turn our attention back to Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 13, and really, even though we were in Jeremiah 31, we've just walked through verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And what you see that in this new covenant, salvation is not something that you earn through the keeping of the law. It is a gift of God. It is what he does in his people. As a promise, I will make a new covenant. There's a need. Because in the old covenant, because of their sin, the people fell short. They did not continue in my covenant, so I disregarded them. And so now, in verses 10 to 12 here, and what we saw in Jeremiah 31, is that this new covenant will be a gift. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do it. I will save you. So we see the promise of this new covenant. Now we see the implementation of this new covenant. Verse 13, the author of Hebrews says, In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. So now he's returning to the argument that he made in verses 7, the beginning of verse 8, the fact that there's this new covenant, a promise that God will do this, that God will save, that he will accomplish what the old covenant could not. There's this promise. And because it is a new covenant... It implies that that the first covenant now is obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In fact, in just a few years after this is written, A.D. 70, the temple itself will be wiped out. Priesthood. There will be no more sacrifices made. It will be done. There's a plan for this new covenant. It's a new covenant that replaces the old. It does what the old could not do. One of the commentators that I was referencing as I was studying this week, Marshall Neal, used an illustration of wagons and cars that I thought was was very fitting. See, there was a time when wagons were the best form of transportation. You get your horse, you get your wagon, you can load stuff in there, you can get your whole family in there, and you can go to town, you can go to the store, you can get around. It was by far the best form of transportation for many years. And yet, eventually, the car was invented. And yes, it took time for the car to become practical, for it to become affordable for the average person. It still might not yet be affordable for the average person, but we all have one. And a car is better than a wagon. It is faster. It gets you around. It accomplishes the, 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 it accomplishes the same thing as a wagon, but in a better way. A wagon is in every way inferior to the car. Now, how crazy would it be if Chris and I decided that, you know, it's just our 
I don't know anything about engines. I, I can't keep track of a car. I'm, just, I'm not good at it. So instead, let's try our hands at horses. So we sold our, sold our cars and bought a couple horses, um, bought, bought, a, bought a wagon, loaded up the kids and tried to take Clinton and Judah to school in our wagon on Monday morning. Tried to run errands in our wagon. It would be foolish, would it not? To insist on using the inferior after the superior has come is foolish. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to his audience. This audience that is so pulled by the old covenant. That is so tempted to run back to that temple. To find hope in those sacrifices. He says there is a better covenant that is superior in every way. Look to that. Cling to that. So here in verse 13, we see that the old covenant has come to an end. Now this leaves a couple of questions that we need to work through as we speak about this new covenant. First, when does this new covenant begin? You see in Jeremiah 31, the circumstances of the whole chapter, yes, it's looking to restoration from the land, but, but really it's looking forward to the kingdom. When Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of David, when he is ruling in power. Even some of the language in the new covenant itself looks forward to that day. And yet at the same time, the clear teaching of Hebrews is that the new covenant has been inaugurated now with the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews 8, 6, a passage that we read this morning, Hebrews 9, 15, Hebrews 12, 24, all uses the language of Jesus as mediating this covenant now. In fact, the, the author of Hebrews, his whole point has been that Jesus is presently, right now, he is serving as your high priest. Right now, he is seated in the presence of the Father. He is pleading for you. This new priesthood, this new covenant has come now. So how can both of these things be true? How can we see both the teaching of, of Hebrews and the, the point that the author of Hebrews is getting at that the new covenant is now, Jesus Christ is mediating for it now, and yet at the same time, that it will be fully fulfilled in the future when Israel is, is restored to the land, when God is reigning from David's throne, when Jesus Christ is reigning from David's throne. Well, this is a, there's a theological word for this. It's called already not yet. Sometimes it's overused. But I think there's an illustration that would help us to kind of understand how, how the new covenant can be here already. We can be experiencing its benefits, and yet at the same time, its full fulfillment is future. Think with me of the Olympics. Long before the Olympics arrive, they are inaugurated. In fact, the new cities and the new country for where the Olympics will be held is decided four to seven years in advance. And as soon as that is settled, what starts? As soon as it is settled, the building is inaugurated. It starts right away, does it not? Stadiums are built. Hotels are built. 
Restaurants and shops move into the area, and they are built. Sometimes even whole cities are built around where these stadiums are. Now, as these restaurants and these stadiums and these shops, as they pop up, do people have to wait four to seven years to use them? Oh, we can't use them until the Olympics. No, you're able to enjoy it as it's built. In fact, we experienced a little bit of that here in Des Moines, not with the Olympics, but a few years ago as the NCAA tournament came to Des Moines for the first time. What did we see all across the metro? Hotels popping up. And as soon as they were built, we were able to use them. We were able to enjoy the benefits of the tournament coming even long before it was here. It's the same with the Olympics. When the Olympics comes to, comes to a city, that city enjoys the benefits of the Olympics coming long before it gets there. It's inaugurated as those hotels and those businesses and those um, restaurants and stadiums are built. And they enjoy the benefits of it. I think that helps us to somewhat understand how this new covenant functions. In a sense, it has been inaugurated with the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He is currently functioning as our high priest. This new covenant has been inaugurated, and we benefit. We enjoy the benefits of that. And yet, at the same time, it is fully coming in the kingdom. And we long for that day. Now, another question that this raises is not just timing, but what about application? How does the new covenant relate to us in the church? We saw very clearly in Jeremiah 31, and even here, in Hebrews 8, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. This covenant is made with a specific people. The author of Hebrews, if he wanted to, if it were true, he could have changed that. He could have said something tamer, like, I will make a new covenant with my people in general. But he didn't. Even though he's making a point that there's application to his audience, he keeps the language of Jeremiah 31. God has made this covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That is very specific. And yet, the author of Hebrews is writing a book to the church. And he's encouraging this church with the truth that this new covenant is yours. Again, the Lord's Supper. Every month as we take the Lord's Supper, as, even as Jesus Christ inaugurated it in Matthew 26, 28, what does he tie? He, he, he ties the new covenant to a church practice. This is the new covenant in my blood. Now, why would he do that if it had absolutely no application to the church? Why would he include something that only benefits Israel into a church ordinance? How can both of these things exist? How can we see that the covenant is with Israel and Judah, and yet that the church somehow benefits from it? I think it's that language of benefits. See, the new covenant is not a covenant with the church, but the new covenant is a covenant that benefits those in the church. 
Another illustration, maybe to help us wrap our minds around this. This week, our kids, Clinton and Judah, are on uh, spring break. It's spring break for Grandview Christian School. And so being on spring break, Monday and Tuesday uh, into Wednesday afternoon, we plan on going on a little trip. We've promised the boys they've been, they've been good in school. They're doing a good job. And so we made them a promise that we will take them on a trip. And we're going to go to, uh, we plan on going to Omaha and getting a hotel with a pool and going swimming. And that's really what they're looking forward to. And then we plan on also going to the zoo. It is their reward for being good in school, for doing a good job. Unfortunately, since Avery and Ted are not in school, they have to stay home. So we're just going to put some food in the house and we'll, you know, put some clothes out and we'll lock the door and say, just don't go outside. We'll see you in a few days. Right? We can't take them. We didn't make them the promise. We only made it to Clinton and Judah. They're the ones in school. No, that'd be foolish. Avery and Theodore benefit from the promise that we made to Clinton and Judah. They get to go on the trip too. They get to go swimming. They get to go to the zoo. Now, it's a promise that we made to Clinton and Judah. But they're part of our family. They benefit from it. I think that helps us to think through this new covenant. It is a promise, it is a covenant that God has made, not with the church, but with Israel and with Judah, with his people, his chosen people. And yet, it is a new covenant that benefits all his people, including the church. This salvation is ours. And we rejoice in that. And yet, there is coming a day when Israel as a nation will be restored to the land, and when the new covenant will be fulfilled to them, to those to whom it was made. And we, as the church, will rejoice in that too. Our God is faithful. He has done what he has promised. He has restored his people to the land. They are flourishing. He kept the remnant. Look what our God has done. We see this same principle with the Abrahamic covenant, do we not? The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant between God and his people Israel, and yet it's a covenant that benefits the whole world. Through you, the whole world will be blessed. I think it's the same thing with the new covenant. There's a covenant between God and Israel, and yet it's a covenant that benefits the church as well. And so, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we rejoice in the faithfulness and the great salvation of our God. We rejoice that we are not left under the old covenant. We rejoice that we are not left to have to earn or keep the covenant, to try to, to earn salvation because we are sinners and there is no salvation for sinners in the law. As you look at this new covenant, you see that it was God's plan that he accomplished it. It is something that he has done. And our great sin has been covered by his great mercy. So we rejoice that the sin that the old covenant so powerfully revealed is covered by the blood of Jesus, whoever lives, whoever lives to plead for us according to the new covenant. We rejoice that it is his doing, that he's kept his promise, and that he will keep it for he is faithful. And so in response... We praise him, for he is worthy. 
the language of the new covenant, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. It's a language that calls for response. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. How awesome is our God. And yet this is not good news that we hoard to ourselves. But that we go and we tell the world, look what our God has done. Yes, the law condemns you. And yet God did not leave it at the law, but he has made a new covenant and he has brought salvation and it is God who will save. Look to Jesus Christ and be saved. Even as we sang the song before the service complete in thee, there is a surety to that last verse. Dear Savior, when before thy bar all tribes and tongues and nations are. That's not a... You know, maybe one day if we get there, there's a surety to it. That day will come. Why? Because we are not left to our own devices. We are not left under the old covenant where there is no salvation. But this new covenant has come. This salvation is guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God has done it. And because it is God's doing, it is guaranteed. And so there is coming a day when every tongue and every nation will stand before the the bar of Jesus Christ. And we will lift his name and we will praise him.